You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We'll be in the book of Ephesians this morning. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. As you're turning there, I want to ask a quick blessing over God's word before I preach. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for providing us a way to come and to know you and to hear from you. And today, Father, I pray that you would speak and preach truth to our hearts and that you would set our hearts free so that we might become worshipers of you who worship you in spirit and in truth. Change the affections of our heart, Lord God, that we might desire you above all things. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 20 through 21 is where we're going to be focusing at. Um, But one of my favorite quotes, start us off here, one of my favorite quotes, and it should be on the screen for you. Um, Got a couple of them, but the first one is that good theology, which is godly truth, leads to good doxology, which is godly praise. Uh, To put it another way, uh, authentic worship flows out of biblical truth. Uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He says that theology must always end in doxology, the joyful praise of our Creator. Otherwise, we have not truly studied the things of God. Uh, Sam Storms has a statement that goes along with this too. He says, the ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge but worship. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead to the joyful praise of God, we have failed. We learn only that we might laud, which is to say that theology without doxology is idolatry. Write that one down. That's a great statement. Theology without doxology is idolatry. Now, the only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sun, Sam Storm says. And in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, we see both good theology and good doxology. Good godly truth and good godly worship. So if you look at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, comprehend with all the saints, What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We need the truth of God to straighten out our worship disorders. Now you might ask, what does he mean when he says worship disorders? So I want to begin first by defining the word worship. Let's start there. The word worship means to honor or to revere someone as a divine or spiritual being. Worship means to regard someone with great or extravagant respect, honor, devotion. It means to exalt or to adore or or to treasure or to be satisfied with or, or to desire someone more than anything else. That's what the word 
worship means. Lots of definitive words there. But desire someone more than anything else. The question that came to my mind as I thought through this is like, what, what do I desire more than anything else? Like, if, if I could have anything right now, if God was standing in front of me like a genie in a bottle, right, and I could ask one thing of him, what would I ask for right now? What would satisfy me? Jesus said that true worshipers, this is John 4, 23 through 24, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the kind of person that God is looking for is a person who worships him. It's the kind of person that God is looking for. And a person who actually authentically worships God is a person who adores God, a person who treasures God, who honors God from deep within their spirit in response to the, the truth of who God is and what God is doing and what God has done and what God will do. This is a worshiper, one who adores God in light of the truth of who God is. And I made the claim earlier that good theology leads to good doxology. Real truth leads to real worship. We need the truth of God to straighten out our worship dis disorders. And if, if it's true that, that worship means to honor and adore God from deep within my spirit according to the truth of God, then the question I think we need to ask is, what does it mean to have a worship disorder, right? Still kind of asking that question. One thing to think about as we navigate our way through this today would be something else that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a hard passage to hear. It's not one that we want to hear in light of ourselves. When we hear this passage, we think, those people in that other church, right? That other person, that's them. The person with a worship disorder, according to this passage, has the right words, might even have the right look, but at the same time has a heart that's been infected with spiritual deception. Just think of the weight of that word and that thought. The right words and the right look, but infected with spiritual deception, spiritually deceived. This person doesn't love God. This person doesn't adore God. This person doesn't treasure God or value God or honor God with their lives. This person treasures or adores, or honors, and loves the pursuit of their own thoughts and their own desires, the fulfillment of their own wants and desires more than God's wants and desires for them. Heaven forbid if that would be true of us. You could say that a person worships what he or she is consumed with. This is what makes this prayer from the Apostle Paul that we just read so life-giving and transforming. Because in this prayer, when we find a man who is totally consumed with God, there's no doubt 
that the, the Apostle Paul is completely in love with God. It's a man from went, who went, went from being a rebel to a worshiper. He met the truth, and the truth set him free from his rebellion. Apostle Paul was a, he was a violent enemy of God. He was enslaved to his own pursuit of self-glory, self-promotion, self-righteousness, self-justification. In one single encounter, the road to Damascus, one single encounter with the all-powerful God of heaven and earth, the Apostle Paul is changed into a slave of Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to say that. In chapter 4, if you look a verse further, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. Change into a slave or a prisoner of Christ Jesus. No longer enslaved or imprisoned in chains of his own desires. Now set free, right, to worship God. Good theology, godly truth, leads to good doxology, godly worship. We need the truth of God to straighten out our worship disorders. This is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. This is what we see in these verses that we're, that, we're, that we're studying this morning. Paul met the truth and he became a true worshiper. He was no longer worshiping God in vain. He's no longer worshiping God with a plastic face. This is obvious all throughout Paul's writings, all throughout Paul's prayer, especially in his last two verses, right? Look at it again. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. All that truth right there. All this truth that he's communicating about God turns to doxology, worship, to him. To him be the glory in us, church. In Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever, for eternity, ends that by saying, amen. And the, the, these last two verses, they're more than just the closing statement to a prayer. They're more than that. They are that, but they're more than that. They are a mixture of theology that then leads to doxology. It, it's a wealth of truth that transforms worship. They, they contain true answers to questions that many of us ask and it's meant to move our hearts to worship the questions that we typically ask about god think about the questions that you typically ask about god i my best estimation of us as humans understanding that most of us are similar and the same we ask questions about god all the time and there's a similarity to all of them is god really powerful enough I think we ask that question in various different ways. Will he really come through for me? Will he give me what I want? We ask these questions of God. Does he really want to answer my prayers? Does he really even want to give me the time of day? Here's the thing. If we answer those questions in light of our circumstances, we can become deceived about God, which then means that we won't worship God in the spirit of truth. But on the other hand, if something trustworthy, something unbroken, unlike our circumstances, because our circumstances are never trustworthy, 
And our circumstances are never unbroken. No matter how perfect they seem, there's still brokenness and untrustworthiness in the circumstances of our life. So if something trustworthy and unbroken, unlike those circumstances, actually governs what we believe to be true, then our worship will be pure and undefiled, acceptable. Proper theology leads to proper doxology. If you have a theology that doesn't lead to doxology, true, authentic doxology, if you have a truth in your mind that doesn't lead you to live an authentic life of worship, then you don't have truth to begin with. It's not even fit to be called theology at that point. Follow me? True, real, proper theology will lead to true, real, authentic, proper doxology, worship of God in our lives. All other things is what, as Sam Storm says, idolatry. This is what the religious leaders and the the hypocrites and Pharisees, Sadducees, and those of Jesus' day had in common. That was his indictment against them. Like, you know the right words. You got the right looks on your faces today. But deep down inside, the worship of me is vain. That was his indictment, right? Proper theology leads to proper doxology. And this, this is exactly what I think we see in these verses. And the proper theology that we learn, that we see in the first clump, especially in verse 20, is that God is more than able and more than powerful enough. That's the truth that we learn in that passage. He is more than able, more than powerful. Let's think of those words, more than. More than able, not just able, more than able. Not just powerful, but more than powerful. Just think on that for a while. Um, That might blow your mind a little bit. And then doxology, the worship that we see here is that we are to glorify God and the church in Christ forever and ever. This is an eternal thing. I often say to people that that if you don't want that now, how will you know if you're going to want that in eternity? And why would you want that in eternity? If you don't want to actually worship God now, why would you want heaven? The only reason you would want heaven is because you're afraid of hell, maybe, which might be a good starting point for some of us. But if fear is the only reason you want heaven, then you don't really want God. Which means you don't want to worship him forever and ever and ever. So we need to go back to square one again, right? Right? Now, a lot of you just nodded your head, and what you did was you nodded your head and amen. Right? <laughs> the last word in this prayer is the word amen. It's a word that calls for agreement. Uh, the word amen simply means so be it. My youngest, Charity, loves to end her prayers with so be it. And it throws all off guard because we're used to hearing amen. Um, means so be it or agreed. And my question is this, so be what? So be what? Agreed with what? What do you agree with? What do I agree with? So be what in my life when I say amen? What are we agreeing with when we say this word? What are we saying so be it to? Lest those words become plastic and fake. I think the word uh, amen in this context is simply an affirmation of the theology and the doxology that Paul communicates here. The truth of God straightens out my worship disorders. 
And the truth is that God is more than able, more than powerful enough. In light of that truth, then I am called, moved, motivated. My, my, my affections are transferred to a different place, away from me and to the all-powerful, all-able, more than powerful, more than able God. Moved away from me and to him, and now I want to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now my question is, is do I really believe those truths, and do I really agree with those truths, and can I say amen to those truths? And, and, and then the result and the outcome of all this is, is, is am I consumed as I think about those truths, am I then consumed with those truths, with God himself as a worshiper of God? Is, is my heart moved to that? So let's start with the first question. Do I believe? I think this is a fill in the blank for you guys. Uh, this is question number one. Do I believe or agree that God is more than able? Would I say amen to that? If I were to say amen to that, can I really say amen to that authentically? There are, there are things that I, there are things that I am able to do. And there are some things that I'm unable to do. I'm able to bench press, not bench press, but leg press 430 pounds. How about that? <clears throat> Getting there. Stud. Yeah. So I'm, I'm able to leg press 430 pounds, but with those same legs, I can't even run a quarter mile without falling down on my face. There's probably all sorts of reasons for that, and y'all can rebuke me afterwards, but for the sake of argument, I'm, a I'm able to answer many questions about God as he reveals himself in Scripture, uh, but I am unable to make other people believe that or obey that. Beyond my limitations, can't do that. Love to try. Have to repent of that continually, Okay. Learning and growing in that continually to find my joy in the presence and the truth of who God is and worship him and not try to force people to believe or do things that God's word says they should do. So to be honest, that there's more things that I'm unable to do than I am able to do. I am unable to be everywhere at once. Only God can do that. Problem is most of us want to be God in one shape, form, or another. Um, I'm unable to know everything. I'd like to say that I do. Uh, I am a limited human being. There are things that are simply impossible for me to do. But with God, nothing is impossible. With God, all things are possible. This is the truth of Scripture, correct? God is more than able to do anything beyond my biggest requests and beyond my wildest dreams. There's no request that is too big for him. There's no dream that is too wild for him. This is why Paul ends his prayer by saying, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, biggest requests, and all that we think, wildest dreams. Tracking? I'm sometimes uh, guilty when it comes to this, of putting God in a box. Anybody else get there too? Put God in a box? When I'm up against something that seems impossible for me, the thing that I've been dreaming of for so long, like, ah, there's no way that he could make that happen because he hasn't yet, maybe. I wind up putting him in a box, elevate myself, make myself bigger than he is, begin to recreate God into my own image, begin to chase my desires in my own strength. Then I get disinterested. 
I get angry with God. I begin to blame him for failing at what I'm actually failing at. Anybody else do this? It makes a sickness inside of us. What rebellion leads to is chaos and confusion and disinterest. This is what it looks like to fall away from God. No longer worship him, but to worship myself. This is a worship dysfunction, and every one of us in this room struggles with it, even if you're not willing to admit it right now. The good news in the midst of this, though, as we look at Scripture, is that even in the midst of my rebellion, and even in the midst of your rebellion, even in the midst of my unbelief, and for you, even in the midst of your own unbelief, and in the midst of my disinterest at times, dissatisfaction with God, even in the midst of your disinterest and your dissatisfaction with God, here's the truth. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. There's no request that's too big for him. There's no dream that is too wild for him. And sometimes, listen, he doesn't answer my prayers. He doesn't answer my big requests in the way that I wish he would. Sometimes he doesn't fulfill my wildest dreams uh, in the timing that I really want him to. I'm sure you can all relate to that. I'm learning in those moments something, though. As I look back over the years of following Jesus and the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs and the valleys and the mountains, I'm learning in those moments that, that what God does as a good, gracious, and merciful, and loving Father that he is, who calls me son, as he makes himself the answer to my biggest requests and my wildest dreams. God himself becomes my biggest request. God himself becomes my wildest dream that trumps all else. That's what's happening in my life as I follow the Lord. I pray that it's the same for you. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that I ask or think because, and here's the reason why, because what I can ask or think is actually tainted by my human desires. But the good news is that God is not limited by human desires. This is James 4, 1 through 10, right? God is not limited by human desire, but I am. And in those moments, what I need the most is not what I really want. And what he does is he makes what I really need into what I really want. And what I really need that I have begun to want more and more over the years is his presence. In this way, good theology is transforming my doxology. Truth is making me into a worshiper of God. And the question for all of us is, do you believe that? Can you say amen to that? Do you, do you agree with that? Does your life show that? Question number two, <coughs> do I believe or agree that God is more than powerful? See, it's easy to question the power of someone that I cannot see when the circumstances of my life are so very visible. Think about that. It's really easy to question the power of God when I cannot see him when the circumstances of my life are like right in front of me, I can see those. Blessed are you who have not yet seen but still believe. Faith is not walking by sight, right? It's difficult to trust God in those moments. Sometimes it's tempting to believe that God is like some cosmic, impersonal force, maybe, that only acts when all the stars align just rightly. 
in the midst of all that, what, what I have to do and what I think you have to do is to fight hard, to hold on to the truth that God is more than powerful, more than powerful enough because his power is both sovereign and personal. Now, I think that's worth us thinking about for a minute. Sovereign and personal. This is why Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power, sovereign power, at work within us, personal. But the kind of power that Paul describes here comes from the Greek word dynamis or dunamis, depending upon how you like to say the Greek word. Um, and just so you don't think that I'm sharing Greek words just to make me look more important and, uh, um, and impressive, uh, I share that to remind us that from that word dynamis or dunamis for power is where we get our English word dynamite, okay? God's powerful is explosive, is dynamic power. In the words of one scholar who wrote on this, he says, it is the sovereign power of the physical and spiritual universe. This sovereign and explosive dynamic power of God, it's not just at work outside of me in an impersonal sort of way like we often think God is. Okay? It's not just in this impersonal sort of a way outside of me, but it's also at work inside of me, inside my heart and my soul in a personal and spiritual way. Not just physical outside, but spiritual inside. This is the dynamic dynamite power of God. Now think about the areas of your life where you've seen the Lord work powerfully. Maybe you once were an angry person. God has powerfully transformed you into a gentle person. This is God's powerful, explosive, dynamite power at work inside of you and I. It's a transformative, recreating kind of a work that shows that I once was this, but now I'm this. I once was blind, but now I can see. This is the dynamite power of God at work in a person's life. Maybe you were a foolish person once. Maybe you still are sometimes. Maybe you can look back and you can see that God has powerfully transformed you into a person of wisdom now. So what God does is he takes fearful people and turns them into courageous people. He takes rebellious people and turns them into God-fearing people. He takes wounded people and turns us into caregivers. He takes broken people with broken marriages. He restores them. He takes people who were addicted to substances and inappropriate behavior and he turns them into people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, truth. The truth of God straightens out our worship disorders. God is more than powerful enough. Why? Because his powerful is sovereign and personal. He's not controlled by circumstances. God's perfect power flows out of him as a perfect being. Do you believe or agree with that, that God is more than powerful? Finally, question number three is, do I want to glorify God forever? Bunny trailed into that earlier. This is a question of eternity. This is a question of heaven. This is a question that answers the only I want question. If you don't want to enjoy him now, you do not want to enjoy him later. The hope is, is that the Spirit of God in these moments would move you to a place that you would want to enjoy God forever because I can tell you, he wants to enjoy you. It's why he gave his son at the cross. There are days for me when I wonder how God will be glorified through this circumstance or that circumstance. Another mass shooting happens. Another marriage hits rock bottom. Teenagers rebel again. 
Longtime friend becomes a mortal enemy. Fear creeps back into me. Despair, depression, they eat away at the hallways of my soul. Times, finances don't appear to stretch. Car breaks down again. House needs repairs. How is God going to be glorified in these circumstances? Paul's simple answer is, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever throughout all generations. Amen? So I have to remember that no matter what the circumstances are, God is bigger and he will be glorified. I may not have the answer to how. I just have to trust and believe that he will so that my heart will be moved to worship him and glorify him in that way. It's not limited by human circumstances. God has actually designed every human circumstance for our good and for his own glory in the church in Christ and for all of eternity. This is Romans 8, 28 through 30. Paul says that God will be glorified in us, the church, in Christ forever and ever. This happens every time that the church gathers as a family. It happens every time that we gather as a family of transformed rebels. Right? That's glorifying to God. Every time we gather to sing songs or study our Bibles or to participate in the Lord's Supper or to pray or evangelize or serve the poor, fellowship, what's happening there is the Lord is being glorified. Like you, When you came in here, you might have come in this morning struggling with temptation. You might have come in struggling with sin or depression or despondency or any other host of things that seek to separate us from our Father who is to be glorified. The good news is that when you walked in here, what you walked into is a family of regenerated rebels. Hearts have been regenerated, made new. We're no longer rebels. We've been brought back from death to life. The tomb of our lives is empty, just like the tomb of Christ is empty. Regenerated rebels, brand new people. That moves my heart to worship. I know who I used to be. I know who I still struggle with being. And yet I see what God has done inside of me and I know instinctively I couldn't produce that change. That truth alone moves my heart to worship, moves my affections to desire God's presence more than anything else. Do you believe and agree with these truths? How is this transforming your affections? How are you being moved to worship even in these moments? So the truth is that regardless of the circumstances of your life, God is more than able. He is more than powerful, and he will bring glory to himself through his work in you and through you if you are in Christ for all of eternity. So that work that he began in you will not cease if he began the work in you truth of God straightens out our worship disorders. Do you want to glorify God forever? Can you say amen to that? Can you say so be it to that? Can you say I agree with that? I think of one quick story from uh, the Old Testament, the book of Job. If you've never read it, I reference it often. Here's a man who faced circumstances far beyond our understanding. 
The person who has suffered the most in this room, I doubt, has suffered as much as Job. And that's not worth the argument. What's really worth the argument is his response in the midst of his circumstances. Job lost everything he could ever want, the sight of heaven. He lost his family, business, reputation, his health. He was the wealthiest man who ever lived, had tons of kids. Relationship with his wife, in my opinion, as I read it, went downhill because when all this happened, she looks at him and she says, curse God and die. And his response was, yeah, sounds like a good idea because I want to keep you, babe. I'll curse God and die with you and we'll go jump off the cliff together. No, not Job's answer at all. Job's answer was, uh, naked I came out of the womb and naked I'm going to go back. I'm just going to worship God right now in the midst of all these circumstances. That's, that's a fantastic story. It moves my heart to worship. No matter what circumstances I face, no matter what loss or gain, no matter what wants don't get filled, what I need right now is to have my heart move to worship God. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is probably the most practical passage in all of the Bible regarding theology and doxology. In it, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, we need the truth of God to straighten out our worship disorders. When Paul makes this appeal in Romans. He earnestly begs his brothers in Christ, in light of God's mercy, which, which reminds us that the penalty for sin, because the word for mercy is what you deserve being withheld. And you and I deserve the full vengeance and wrath of God. That's what we deserve because of our sin. Jesus took that on the cross so that you and I could come close to God. So in light of that mercy, the wrath of God being withheld from us, Paul says, that we are to willingly give our bodies as a living. Listen, not dying, though we all are all dying physically. <coughs> we are to give our physical bodies, our living bodies right now, as a holy, word holy, set apart for a special purpose. So when we use our bodies and our lives for things that are not godly and God-glorifying, we are doing that because we have subverted what we were created for to begin with, and we are living like Adam. We're not living like Jesus. We're set apart for a special purpose. And we are to live our lives in a sacrificial way. Sacrifice means self-denying means to deny yourself you think about jesus on that cross he he denied every physical thing he wanted if you would have asked jesus what do you want his answer would have been i'm thirsty and these nails hurt and that whip hurt and this crown of thorns it hurts and that spear it hurt and there's a part of me that doesn't want that. 
And yet I said to my Father in heaven, nevertheless, not what I want, Father, but what you want. Make that what I want. So for the joy set before him, he denied himself, went to the cross, and sacrificed himself on our part. So when Paul calls us to sacrifice and deny ourselves, he's saying that's an act of worship, adoration, honor to the Lord. Practical way that he calls us to do this is to not be conformed. Not be conformed, molded or shaped or formed. That's the word there. Do not be conformed, molded, shaped, or formed by the ways of the world. You think about the way that the world does business in life. Relationally, financially, in business, physical material gain, all of it, the way that the world does its things has a tendency to seep its way into our lives. But what, what Paul calls for is that we would not be conformed by that outward, external pressure of the world, but that we would actually be transformed and compelled by the inward work of the Holy Spirit inside of us who makes us into worshipers of God. Do not be conformed. Do not be molded, do not be shaped, do not be formed by the ways of the world, but instead be transformed. This is a, a picture of being made new, changed, restored by what? By what? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind, the, the remodeling or the, the, the reforming of your mind. It's through this process, this process of sacrificial work, worship that, that Paul calls us to here in Romans. 12, it's that process whereby we are continually made into worshipers of God. Theology results in doxology. Proper truth leads to proper worship. the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of Christ that moves us in this worship. It's the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's the point of all Christian theology that actually drives our Christian doxology. It's the cross where we see what appears to be weakness in death that is transformed into a display of power in the empty tomb. The truth of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb is that God is more than able to overcome your greatest sin. For any of you sitting here today or hearing this message, you think that you've sinned too bad for God's power to overcome that, then you are putting yourself in the seat of God. Because my Bible says that at the cross of Christ, it was finished. And that the work of Christ at the cross is more than powerful. What you're simply saying, if you think you've sinned too bad to be saved, you're saying that God is weak, and that you're actually stronger, more powerful, and more logical than he is. Don't stay there if that's you. God is more than able to overcome your greatest sin. He is more than powerful enough to transform his biggest opponents. God has no enemy and no opponent that he cannot change and transform. He is more than worthy of all of our worship because of that. 
broken body, Christ, shed blood of Christ, the empty tomb of Christ can transform the most evil and vile person who ever lived. And he can take that person and he can turn them into a person who glorifies and honors God alone for all of eternity. Good theology leads to authentic doxology. The truth of God straightens out our worship disorders. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the message of the gospel. And we thank you for the work of your son at the cross. And we thank you for the power of the empty tomb. Father, we thank you that you are more than able, that you are more than powerful, and that your name will be glorified in us through the church in Christ for all of eternity. To that, help us all to say, so be it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.